All right, let's pray and commit the evening fully to the Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the wonderful opportunities there have been during this day to learn more of you, to learn more of your word. Father, more opportunities to tell others about the love of Jesus. And we just thank you for everything that's happened today, whether it's been good or whether it's been bad. And we can do that because your word declares that all things work to the good. And Father, so we, it is with rejoicing hearts that we gather together tonight. And, and thank you for the opportunity of coming apart and gathering around your word. Father, tonight I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Father, who are hungry for the word of God. I would also pray for all those who are not here, Lord, especially those who regularly come, but through parents' evenings or training courses or whatever it is. Father, can't be here tonight. We just ask, Father, that they might be thoroughly blessed, as indeed we will be. But Father, tonight we hand over to you. We hand over our understanding, our intellect. We hand over our ears. We hand over all our thinking capacity to you, Lord. Because we know that unless your Holy Spirit teaches us, then we learn nothing of uh, spiritual value. So we ask you to teach us by your Spirit, Lord. And Father, take this tongue of mine and use it as a channel of your truth and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are on the subject tonight of dispensationalism. And last week, if you remember, uh, I, well, I remember that many of you actually came along and there was this puzzled look on your face, you know, dispensations, what's it going to be about? And last week, I spent most of the time going through exactly what dispensationalism means. And I hope you all under, understand now what the word dispensation is. Do you remember? It's related to the Greek word for a house, and it means the law that you use to run your house. And we would translate it as the management, as the stewardship, all right? The, the laws that you apply to run a household or an estate. And having said that, I gave a few examples from our own lives, but the point I made was this, that what I wanted to do in this particular part of the course, instead of going through the Bible and the events of the Bible chronologically, beginning with creation and going right through, instead of doing that, what I wanted to do was to have a look at the dispensations in the Bible, in other words, the distinct periods of God's management of the earth to see if we can actually see a few things that tie together and a few convenient categories that will help us actually frame, put a frame up for the history of the Bible. And last time, that's what we tried to do. I outlined as well last time the three things <coughs> that mark out a dispensationalist. I mean, how do you know whether you're a dispensationalist? Well, there are three things that would show you whether you're a dispensationalist or not. First of all, a dispensationalist is one who consistently takes the literal interpretation of the Bible. Consistently. Now, that allows, obviously, for idiom and, you know, obvious picture language, but generally we believe that God has used language to say what he means, and he means what he says. All right? So that's the first thing. Secondly, a dispensationalist is someone who always makes a strong division between the church and Israel. <clears throat> All right? So that we have the church on one side, we have Israel on the other side, and never do we allow the two to overlap. It is true that the church consists of Jew and Gentile, but they're the church. 
But God still has a purpose, even though there is a church, for literal national Israel. Now that marks out a dispensation. All right, a dispensationalist. The third thing we looked at, which was a bit more difficult, was that a dispensationalist believed that it was the glory of the Lord that was the aim of history. Do you remember that? A non-dispensationalist thinks sometimes that salvation is the aim of history. But the dispensationalist says, no, salvation is part of the glory of the Lord, but it's, salvation isn't the whole story. There has to be the glory of the Lord seen on every part of the earth and throughout earth's history. That is why, for example, um, a non-dispensationalist doesn't mind that Israel is cut off. A, dis- a non-dispensationalist will say, well, the aim of history, you see, is salvation. And the Jews preached salvation when they rejected the Messiah. Salvation passed on to the church. Well, it doesn't matter as long as salvation continues through. And if you say to them, well, does Israel have a future? Well, why should Israel have a future? Salvation still marches on. Now, the dispensationalists would say, ah, 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 that's not good enough. That God, having chosen Israel, must see his glory in them, and they must end up glorious. In other words, God must fulfill his promises to Israel. And that's why a dispensationalist believes that God still has a future for Israel. It has to be so for his glory to be seen in Israel. Do you see the point that I'm making? So it's those three things that mark out a dispensationalist. And then we just used our general knowledge of the Bible to show that there are four major dispensations in the Bible. Do you remember we saw that the coming of Jesus was crucial? The time before Jesus' coming, we called Israel. And after all, Jesus came as the Messiah to Israel, didn't he? After Jesus came and Israel had rejected, it was the church that God then established. And so we had those two basic dispensations. Obviously, Israel began with Abraham. He was the Hebrew. And it began with Abraham. So before Abraham, there had to be a different administration. And so we called that pre-Israel right? And there were two major blocks in the Old Testament. And then we know that the day is coming when the second advent will occur, and after that, Jesus will reign personally on the earth for a thousand years. Well, that's another administration or dispensation. And there were our four basic administrations. And I hope those of you who were here then remember the uh, diagram I put up, okay? Right, having said that now, What we have to do is to start looking at these dispensations. Oh, by the way, I also, didn't I, talked about the criticism that comes towards dispensationalists. That dispensationalism is the nearest you get to a rude word in Christianity today. And people criticize dispensationalism for reasons we'll see next time. The third talk is going to be the one, and suddenly you'll say, oh, I see why they find it so unpalatable. All right? But today, before we get on to that rather uh, juicy talk next time, today is the time we've got to look at the dispensations and we've got to see whether we can see distinct, definable characteristics so that we can say, yes, there has been a shift in administration. By the way, one of the criticisms you'll read from non-dispensationalists is this, that the dispensational scheme splits the Bible up. It destroys the unity of the Bible. And what they say is that dispensationalists, like myself, say that everything changes in every dispensation. That is not true. 
And so before we look at the distinguishing features of the dispensations, I want to have a look at the unifying things, all right? Now, I've produced a duplicated sheet, and I hope you've all got a copy of the sheet in front of you. It's going to be a most unusual Bible study for me, because I'm actually going to use notes for the first time for many, many years. And the sheet actually represents the notes that I'll actually be using. And you'll notice here on the first part of this, Dispensations Part 2, I don't jump straight into the dispensational differences. First of all, I look at the unifying characteristics of all dispensations. Because there are certain things that do not change, even though God's administration changes somewhat, there are certain things that remain the same. So let's start off with the things that remain the same. And these are absolutely vital. And if ever you hear a person criticizing dispensationalists, for saying everything changes, they don't know what they're talking about. By the way, this is a rather good debating technique, <coughs> by the way, um, one that I've certainly used in my debating career, and that is this, you actually say what the opposition say, except they don't actually say what you say they say, and then you pull it apart. Now, isn't that a nice uh, thing to do? In other words, you say, ah, oh, well, you see, they say such and such. In fact, they don't say that, but it's so wrong, the thing that you say they say, that everyone says, oh, those dispensationalists, aren't they awful? And this happens time and time again. Don't listen to people, right, who say they know what dispensationalists say unless you know what the truth about dispensationalism. Here are the unifying characteristics. First of all, the character of God never alters. All right? It doesn't matter which part of Earth's history you look at, forever God will remain the same. And I've done a whole series, haven't I, on the, uh, the character of God. And do you remember I said he had endless attributes, but there were ten that I pointed out. Sovereignty, absolute righteousness, absolute justice, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, that he's eternal, he's love, he's truth or veracity, and he never changes. Those ten, you should be able to quote those like I can, by the way, having listened to that series. God never changes, so he remains the same throughout. The second thing that doesn't change in the dispensations is the condition of man. However, I have to put a little bracket in there, because there is one part of human history where man was not fallen. For the rest of human history, man is fallen. And so except for the pre-fall part, the condition of man remains exactly the same, all right? By the way, uh, some Christians today actually sort of declare that they're not fallen. I've heard Christians actually go, no, I haven't got no sin nature anymore. Uh, no, definitely not. Absolutely no old sin nature, you see? By the way, if you ever meet one of these uh, people, just go invite them on holiday for two weeks with you. Um, you'll soon see whether they're fallen or whether they are not. Um, better still, why did you ask their husband or their wife as to whether they've got no sin nature? You'll soon find the truth about them. The truth about man is this, that man is a sinner, that man has fallen short of the glory of God, and consistently so, and that sin emanates from man in all of his activities. That remains the same. The third one, the angelic conflict remains exactly the same. All right? Do you know we're in the middle of a major spiritual battle that is raging between the devil and God? That remains the same throughout all the dispensations of the earth. 
all right? In every dispensation, that's the battle. And hence, you've also got a battle between demons and elect angels, between unbelievers and believers, and we're part of that battle. The fourth thing is the means of salvation. Listen, there's only one way to get saved, and it's through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the only way you can be saved. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Now that's the words of the Lord himself. Now some people are confused on this, and they think there are different ways of being saved, you know. I've heard some people say that uh, in Israel, um, the way to be saved was you kept the law. By keeping the law, you were saved. If you ever hear a person saying that, they don't know what they're talking about. Talking out, out of the top of their hat, as some people say, or out of their backs of their neck. That's not true at all, as we'll see in a moment. And some people say, well, earlier on, obviously they didn't know about Jesus, so they just tried their best, and God accepts it. Beloved, that can't be so. There's only one way that a person can be saved, that's through belief in Christ. That's true in every dispensation, as we'll see in just a moment. Fifth is human responsibility. Every man who's ever lived on the face of this earth will one day give an account to God as to how they've lived their life. Do you realize that? Adam, you know, when he was in the Garden of Eden, he did not have a sun lounger and put his feet up and have uh, a bird flying in with iced lemon juice. And that was paradise. That's not the way of things. Some Christians think that's what paradise is. You just float about like a cloud all day. You don't do anything. You just shout hallelujah to one another. And you know, you float. There will never be a time in your life, whether it's in your eternal life or in your life now, that that will be true. Man's always got a task to do, and that means we're always accountable to God. We've got to give an account. You remember Adam had to till the ground, right? He was a husbandman, and he had to give an account about that. And so today, every human being has been given certain talents, and one day they've got to give an account to God as to how they've used their talents. Whatever you've got, by the way, is a gift from God. Do you realize that? If you've got a good brain up there, it's a gift from God. How are you going to use it? Right? If you're really good looking, it doesn't apply to anyone here, obviously, but I mean, if you're, if you're really good looking, then that's a gift from God, you know. It won't last for long. A hundred years' time, you won't be so glamorous. Um, God will require of you, how have you used that particular talent? If you're a popular person and have a, a, a winning way, you know, and uh, everyone wants to be your friend, that's a gift from God. God will ask you one day, how have you used it? And to be friends with God is the best thing of all. And last of all, human destiny is the same. In every dispensation, men have either gone, when they've died, to heaven or to hell. All right, now they've been stopping off places along the way, obviously, uh, and the, the way this has occurred has changed slightly, but that's their final destiny. Either they will be in the lake of fire forever and ever, or they will be in heaven face to face with the Lord forever and ever. Now those things remain the same. All right. What we have to do is to look at the dispensations now and say, well, if those things remain the same, are there any discernible, definable, definite differences that we can see that makes us say God has changed his administration from time to time. All right, now when I uh, came to prepare this, and you know I put many hours of preparation into every study that I do, when I came to prepare this, I suddenly realized that if I carried on at the rate I was going, I'd need an hour and a half for each dispensation. And I thought, this is ridiculous, because I'm going to talk so much about these, we're going to lose the wood for the trees. 
So I thought, I, I ripped up all my notes, you know, that I was busy writing. I thought, no, the best thing I can do is to tabulate it so that we make it simple. And in front of you, you have the tabulation that I've worked out. You'll notice the four dispensations are listed, and there are then minor points A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, which are seven points that I've chosen, and they're the same points in each of the dispensations, and I've actually compared each of those points between the four dispensations. Now, what I'm going to do using this particular list I'm going to go through the various points, and let's just see it. By the way, this is a very useful exercise, because on one sheet of paper, we've got the span of history as given in the Bible. Isn't it useful? Well, I hope you'll find it useful anyway. Let's just start with the pre-Israel period, and may I remind you, we are talking about the period between creation and the major miracle that occurred, the Tower of Babel. It was after the Tower of Babel, just a few generations after that, that Abraham came along. And Abraham couldn't have been chosen in the way he was unless they'd been the Tower of Babel. So we're talking about the period generally between creation and the Tower of Babel, about a 2,000-year period, all right, about 2,000 years, and covered in the Bible in Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. Now let's see the main characteristics of that particular dispensation. First of all, A, all people consisted of one race. They were all conscious of the fact that they were descended from Adam. Adam, as you know, lived for hundreds of years, 930 years. Most of these people either knew him, or his son, or his grandson, or his great-grandson. And so they were conscious of this family relationship. So you didn't have racial differences, as we might know them in our society, or even national differences. What you had was one family, which as it grew in size, subdivided into smaller families. So you got families, you had clans, you had tribes, do you see? But that's all that they had. And generally speaking, they didn't get on, by the way, even though they were one race, which actually is a, a, a little pointer uh, to our present society. Because some people suggest today, if we all accepted one another and just as one race, we'd all get on. The trouble is, you see, fallen man can't get on. We'll get on if everyone's born again, because when you're born again, it doesn't matter which race you are, you're related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the marvelous thing. And I've met uh, Christians from every single country of the world, and you know, we talk the same language. It's really wonderful. There's no difference between us whatsoever. But this little dispensation just proves that the people who are busy saying, well, you see, if we solved all racial problems, we'd be all right. Well, they didn't have any racial problems here, and they weren't all right. There were wars and trouble and, you know, evil on every hand. But there was one race. B, as part of A, really, not only was there only one race, there was one language and one culture as well. We all spoke one language, or they all spoke one language, and more than that, they all had the same culture. Amazing. Now, the Esperantists among us would say, oh, well, you see, if everyone learnt Esperanto, it would help a lot. Again, I would say to you, it didn't help in those days. There were still wars, still fighting, still trouble, despite all of this sort of stuff that went on. Which language? I bet it was Hebrew. I bet it was. All right? Culture. You do know that we have different cultures, don't you? Sometimes when I travel abroad, I meet 
Brits, you know, say in Austria or something like this. And they may have lived in that particular country for 10 years, and they really love the people of that country, and they really think they're wonderful. And the problem is, of course, that the moment a British person comes in, they say, oh, it is nice to speak to another Briton. Because the culture's the same. Do you see what I mean? All right, but in these days, they didn't have any such problem. They were all of one culture. C, there was verbal revelation from God. Now, as far as we know, there was no written scripture before the Tower of Babel, as far as we know. Now, they are finding now clay tablets with writing on that date quite a long way back. But here, the verbal revelation was given by God, and it was passed on verbally. You know, don't you, some of the tribes of Africa, according to the book Roots anyway, uh, remember their history verbally. And some uh, chief men in the tribes of Africa can recite their whole history, stretching back hundreds of generations, and get it absolutely word perfect, you see. Well, it was similar in these days. The revelation which came from God was passed on verbally. As far as we know, it wasn't written down. D, there were believers in every family, and it was the believer's responsibility to preach the gospel. Every family had believers and unbelievers, and the believers were the ones who preached to the unbelievers. So it didn't matter who you were or where you were, if you were a believer, then you preached the gospel. All right? Easy. E, the heads of the families and clans were the priests. If you were the firstborn, when your father died, you became the priest for the whole family. If you were head of a family, you were the priest. If you were head of a clan, you were the priest. If you were a head of a whole city, you were the high priest over all the others. It was done according to age, right, according to position in the family. Adam, obviously, acted as a priest. Noah acted as a priest, and uh, our scholarship leads us to believe that was the way that they always did it. And by the way, that's called the priesthood according to Melchizedek. For Melchizedek, you see, was king of Salem, and as a result, he was the high priest. The fact that he was king made him the high priest, and that's priesthood after Melchizedek. And there's a little thing, you see. We'll see Melchizedek a little later on. Uh, next, now notice this, salvation by faith in Christ. Now hold on a minute. If you notice, number four of the unifying characteristics of all dispensations is the means of salvation by faith in Christ. Why is it then that I put it also in the distinct characteristics of each dispensation? Now, I've done that, first of all, to remind you that there is only salvation in Christ, there is salvation in none other, but also to show you that Christ was revealed in a different way in each dispensation. That's why I put under F, salvation by faith in Christ as revealed in Genesis 3.15, which is the first statement of the gospel. Now, this takes you right back to the salvation series, doesn't it? And I hope you're all au fait with those. Let's just have a look at it fleetingly. Genesis 3 verse 15. The fall has just occurred, and God is passing out judgment. And in verse 14, he passes judgment upon the serpent, all right, which was used by the devil. And in verse 15, we have the first ever statement of the gospel, all right, the first evangelical message that was ever given. And this was God speaking to Adam and to Eve. And look what it says, Verse 15, I will put enmity, hatred, between thee, Satan he's talking to, and the woman. And between thy seed, that's all the unbelieving seed that come from Satan, and her seed, 
That's the believers, obviously, but specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. He, cross out the it, please. He it is in the King, should be in the King James. He shall bruise thy head or crush thy head. It's much stronger than bruise. He'll crush your head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. And do you remember in that very first take done 10 years ago or something, I talked about the fact that a snake comes along and he catches hold of your foot and he injects poison into your whole system because he catches hold of your foot. Do you remember I said that? And so I said that Satan has injected the fall into the whole human race and it's spread throughout the whole body of the human race. But the promise here is this, that Jesus will come along and he'll crush the head of the the serpent. In other words, there is one coming who is going to be descended from the woman, one of the women's children, and he will actually destroy the serpent who caused the problem in the first place. Now, who is that person? Who is the seed of the woman? It's Jesus Christ. And you see, in this period of time, all you had to do was believe in the seed of the woman, and you were born again. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how they did it. Uh, You see also in verse 21, oh, verse 20, this is why Eve is called Eve. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve, living because she was the mother of all living. And the point is this, Adam had spread death through the fall. Eve was going to spread life, praise God. Through Eve would eventually come the answer to the problem of death, which had been produced uh, through Adam's fall. All right, so that's what we've got here. And so if salvation by faith in Christ as revealed in Genesis 3.15. And this was the revelation of salvation. All they had to do was believe in the seed of the woman and they would be saved. But it's Jesus Christ, all the same. The next one, G, is this. It says, worship anywhere. And in this particular dispensation... If a person wanted to worship, all they had to do was to build an altar and they would start worshipping God. It didn't matter where the altar was, they would just start building and they could worship God wherever they went. Now, these are very distinct characteristics. Fine. All right, there's the first dispensation. Now, all we have to do is go on to the next one and you'll begin to see the changes, the shifts that occur as far as God's administration is concerned. And so we come to the second of the dispensations, the Israel period. And this, of course, stretches from Babel, the Tower of Babel, through to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, actually, that's not quite accurate, as we'll see next time, but it will do for now. And I should say one other thing. Sometimes between these dispensations, there is a period of overlap. You see, when one dispensation begins fading out and the new dispensation starts coming in. And you'll notice in the early church, for example, when the church was first established, it was very Jewish at first. And in fact, many of the uh, uh, apostles felt that it was just to Israel, really, that uh, God had given the church. You know, the church was composed only of Jews. And it was that revelation at Cornelius' house, if you remember, that showed him that it was for the Gentiles as well. There is an overlap here. All right, so let's go on to the Israel period. Uh, the passages of the Scripture, much of the Old Testament, not all, but much of it, and much of the Gospels. Do remember, please, that John the Baptist is an Old Testament saint. Will you remember that? Right? He's from the period of Israel, and Jesus came to Israel. And in Matthew 10, for example, he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. 
So get it in context. So it stretches from Babel right through to the death and resurrection of Christ. Now let's have a look at this. In this period, first of all, the peoples are separated into nations. All right? Three basic groups of nations named after Noah's sons, the Hamitic tribes, the Shemitic tribes, or Semitic tribes, and the Japhitic tribes. And today, that's the uh, division that um, anthropologists use. And every tribe of the earth can be put into one of those particular categories. But notice, it's entirely different from A in the pre-Israel period, where they're all one race. It's not true anymore. Oh, I'd love to have been at the Tower of Babel. It must have been so amusing to have watched it, right? All these people of one language, one culture, one race, they're all working away, and, and believe you me, the thing's being built fast. And all of a sudden, they turn to their neighbor and say, pass me the spanner, or whatever it was, and it sounds like nothing on earth. And the chap says, what are you talking like that for? And suddenly, there's been a change, and the chap says, what are you talking like that for? And soon, everyone's saying, why are they talking like that? And soon, you find someone who can talk like you. You say, everyone's gone mad except for us. <laughs> Yes, and this split occurred. Now, the moment that occurred, there wasn't just a change, you know, in language there. There was a change racially. They actually took on a different culture. They became a, of a recognizable race at that particular point. And that's A and B. People separated into nations, many languages, and many cultures, and each one, by the way, is as good as any other. Now, we in the West tend to think, unless you're Western, Really, uh, it's not terribly good. And I know people, you know, who know nothing about Hebrew culture who find the Bible very difficult to read because they don't. We really must learn uh, a bit of um, uh, humility about this, you know. God has given to each uh, particular nation a particular culture and a particular language. And so the splits occurred. Now, is that a change? Well, of course it's a change. Is that a distinct change? Yes, it's very distinct indeed. That's what we mean by dispensation. There's been the shift at this particular point. C. From this time on, there was written revelation. Now, it is true that God spoke verbally. But you see, every word that was spoken verbally was written down by Moses and others. And soon, what was written down was the Word of God. That which was not written down was not the Word of God. It had to be written down. And Moses was the person who actually came along, of course, and he penned much of it. The book of Job is his the first five books of the Bible were written down. Okay, and that's important. So, C, written down, and there we go. By the way, sometimes it's very useful if you're dealing with a person like David to see how much of the Bible he actually had. Do you realize David had never read Proverbs, the book? I mean, he'd given the Proverbs to his son, but he didn't know that his son was going to compile them. Uh, Ecclesiastes was unknown to David. He didn't have it in his Bible. Isaiah wasn't there. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, wasn't he blessed? Right? He didn't have to uh, struggle through these difficult books. He didn't have Daniel. He had nothing like that. But he did have, of course, the five books uh, of Moses, and he did have uh, Joshua and Judges. I like to think of Elijah, right? Elijah had the writings of David and of Solomon. He didn't, however, have the prophets, you see? And so, again, he didn't have Malachi. Never heard of Malachi. If you'd said, we'll turn to Malachi 4, Elijah would say, what are you talking about? Who's this Malachi? And it's nice to see how the Word of God has been added to along the way. All right, <clears throat> so that's it, written revelation. D, Israel becomes the chosen missionary base. 
Now notice D in the pre-Israel period, believers from every family preach the gospel. Now God decides that he'd choose one nation to be his representative nation. And they would be the missionary nation, they would be the ones who would preach the gospel to all the other nations, and God's truth and God's purposes would be seen in that particular nation. You see? Do you know, by the way, Abraham was a Gentile from the land of Chaldea. You know that, don't you? Ur of the Chaldees, and so on. And God called him. This man had faith in God. And God called him, and he said, Abraham, leave your land, cross over the river, and go to Canaan. And he was the first missionary. Because normally, you see, up to that time, they'd all preached in their own communities. Now Abraham was being called out of his community to go elsewhere to preach the gospel. This was a change. The word Hebrew actually means one who crosses the river. That was him. The moment he crossed the river, he became a Hebrew. And that's where the Hebrews actually came from, from this man, Abraham. That's a shift, you see, in the, in the overall plan. Okay. So there, there you've got it. He was told to go to Canaan. Uh, it was in this missionary nation that God would invest all of his glory for that time. And let's have a look at that in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> a statement written by Paul as absolute truth, and so it is. Romans 9, 3, 4, and 5. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And that's a statement of what God actually gave to the Jews. And, and the Jew, Jewish nation was there to preach the gospel to all the rest of the world. That's what they were there for. And the world was to look at Israel and was to say, that is how God treats a nation who will follow his ways. And that was the perfect plan of God. Now, is this different? There's a shift here. Israel was not chosen before this time. Now they are chosen. All right, and there's part of that E... Israel was designed to be a whole nation of priests. God wanted every one of them to be priests. Where do we read that? That's Exodus 19. If you go to Exodus 19, let's read this very, very familiar passage indeed. Exodus 19. And verse 3, Exodus 19, 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye, the nation of Israel, shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all peoples. You'll be the top nation. For all the earth is mine, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A whole kingdom of priests. But it was conditional as to whether they would keep the covenant, as to whether they would keep his word indeed. And what happened to Israel? They didn't do it. God wanted every one of them to be a priest. In fact, that wasn't the end of the priesthood. 
They started disobeying God. They didn't follow God perfectly. And as a result, instead of the whole kingdom being a priest, what happened? The Levitical tribe was chosen, the tribe of Levi, to be the priestly tribe. And here we get the uh, Levitical priesthood beginning to be stated. And by the way, it's a real Romans 8.28 situation that God should choose Levi. Levi was a gangster. Did you know that? He was a mugger. Oh, yes, he was. It's a marvellous Romans 8.28, this. I think we'll have a look at it. Um, just comes to my mind now. But if you keep your finger in the place here and go to Genesis 49, where we see Jacob on his deathbed. And Jacob gives a prophecy about all his sons, right? I've been to my little boy's parents' evening tonight before coming to the Bible study here. And as a teacher, I didn't used to look forward to parents' evenings. You know, these would be nerve-wracking times. I didn't realize how nerve-wracking it is for parents as well. But this must have been extremely nerve-wracking. You're all sitting around this dead man, this dying man's bed. He's, he's about to be a dead thing, and he's going to prophesy about you and tell you what he thinks of you. And you know that no matter what you do, it's going to make no difference to him. And here they are. And, and it's funny here because Simeon and Levi are put together. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Do you remember their, their sister, Dinah? Do you remember she'd been raped? Do you remember by Shechem? Do you remember that? The Hivite. And Shechem wants to marry her. You know, it's all uh, given, isn't it, in Gen Genesis? You know the full history. And they come along and uh, they say, well, we'll consider it. The trouble is you're not circumcised, you know and we can't really marry her off to a circumcised person. And so the whole tribe circumcised, the whole household circumcises themselves. And while they're still sore, Simeon and Levi come in, they murdered the whole lot, and they killed all their cattle and all their sheep as well. And that's what Jacob is referring to here. Why, that lot, they're gangsters, he said. Wow, what a pair. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Oh, my soul, he says, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honour, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will, the King James says, they dig down a wall, except in the Hebrew it says they hamstrung oxen. That was a cruel thing to do. It means they put a knife in the legs of oxen, and they cut their muscles through so that the oxen were helpless. And they lay there, unable to get up. Really cruel, and eventually they died, of course, of hunger and thirst. Really cruel. That's Levi and Simeon. And then comes uh, the, the cursing upon them, seven. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Ha-ha! There we are. They're going to be scattered in Israel. But the thing we know about Levi is he repented. And because he repented, guess what? He got scattered in Israel, all right, but as the priestly tribe. Wasn't that Romans 8, 28? Rather thrilling, that. That's how God takes cursing, turns it into blessing. And so he takes this gangster type, he makes him in, into the priestly tribe. It's a really wonderful picture. And by the way, that's why it's so lovely when people are, are converted, and rough, tough people are converted, because often they make the best possible believers. Praise God. We must never sum someone up in the natural. All right, well, that's a bit of history. And so, instead of the whole nation being priests, it was the Levitical priesthood. And that meant that if you were a physical relation of Levi, you could be a priest. If you weren't, you couldn't. Easy as that. Fine. And there you go. Oh, by the way, there is a lovely, poignant moment 
where the old dispensation meets the new dispensation, right? And perhaps once you understand dispensationalism like this, you'll understand these poignant things that are revealed in the Bible. If you just go to Genesis 14, we have a, a wonderful meeting. Genesis 14, here Abraham has defeated the alliance, you know, that was uh, causing a lot of havoc in the area where he was living. And uh, he spoils them. He, you know, he's, he's, it's an utter defeat for the alliance opposite him. And in verse 18, he's just returning from the battle when he meets the strange man Melchizedek. And look at this. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Because in that dispensation, the king was the priest, the high priest. And here he meets the new dispensation coming in with Abraham. It's rather beautiful, really, isn't it? You see? And the writer to the Hebrews is going to use this meeting to prove something about priesthood and the Levitical priesthood in particular. You read it for yourself sometime. And he blessed Abraham. He said, blessed be Abraham, right, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Do you see the poignancy? Do you see why that's recorded here, by the way, this meeting? It's rather beautiful, all right? But the Levitical priesthood was going to replace the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek there, temporarily, I should say. If, in the Israel period, salvation by faith in Christ. All right, now that's exactly the same as F above, except that the revelation is more complete, and we have a few more details. And that's why I put in F, as revealed in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the feasts. Now let's get this clear about the law. The law was not given to man to save man. No, definitely not. Definitely. The law expresses the perfect character of God. The Ten Commandments are the perfection of God. That's his perfect will for humanity. But the law is there to do three things. One, it proves to man that he's a sinner. You know that. Do you know the Ten Commandments prove, prove that you're a sinner? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the whole uh, law is summed up in this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. Right. Well, don't go on to the other commandments. Let's just stick with that one. Hands up here if you've kept it. Oh. Well, well, well. And yet some people are busy trying to keep the law to get saved. You can't, you're defeated before you begin with the law. It's there to prove you're a sinner, totally. And by the way, if you were doing that today, hands up if you've done that today. Well, I'm shocked. No, I'm not shocked at all. It's of course that the fall, you know, is, is really potent within us. Okay, but it's not only that we don't do it today. Do you know, if there's ever been a day that you haven't done it, you've broken the law. And James says, if you've broken one part, you've broken it all. And so faced with God's law, you suddenly say, well, what's the hope for me? There is no hope. And the law, it is, reveals sin. Lovely. It reveals sin in you. It reveals the perfection of God, but it reveals your condition. But the law just doesn't stop with the Ten Commandments. Then it goes on to talk about the feasts of the Lord, the calendar of the Lord, the tabernacle, the priests and their garments, and everything in that points to the one who is the Messiah, the one who's going to come to save all the world. 
And when the Hebrews looked at the rest of the law, they could see how the Messiah was going to come, what he was going to do. He's going to be the lamb without blemish that was going to be slain for the sins of the world. And so the gospel was preached through all of these things. And when they sinned, they had to take an offering as a sign that they were trusting in the great offering that was going to come. You see? That was it. And it, it looked forward all the time to the coming Messiah, and they really trusted on him. The third thing, by the way, the law did was this. It gave national laws. <clears throat> laws which, if kept, would make Israel the most glorious nation on the face of the, this earth, even today. Praise the Lord. All right? And if they kept those laws, everyone in the world would have known there was a God who reigned over Israel. But they failed to do that. But that was what the law was actually for, and we've got to get that clear. And by the way, the gospel message in this period of Israel was this. Believe on the one who is to come. Believe on the one who is to come. There's one coming who will save men from their sins. Believe on him. And that was the message. John the Baptist preached it, didn't he? He said, there is one coming after me. Right? And he says, I'm not even worthy to be compared with this one. But he is the one who will do it. Acts 19 verse 4 confirms that. This is what Paul says about John's ministry. Acts 19 verse 4, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. And that was the message of salvation given in the period of Israel. But it's still belief in Christ that counts. Do you see how simple this all is? All right. The next one then, G, worship at the tabernacle or temple only. You couldn't worship anywhere. You had to go to the place where God had put his presence. And when you went there, there you could worship, you see. This is why, by the way, when the kingdom split between the north and the south, King Jeroboam, king of the north, was very worried about the worship center at Jerusalem. And he said this, oh, he said, if I let my people go down to Jerusalem as they've got to do, we're going to be in trouble. So he built a new place of worship. Do you remember that? At Bethel, on the border. And he built one up north. And he said to his folk, look, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore where you could be brainwashed. Go to the new centers. You see, it was not legitimate, needless to say. But you could only worship at the tabernacle or temple. Now, when you compare A and B here, right, the pre-Israel period with Israel, has there, is there a distinct shift? Well, of course there is. This isn't fiddling it. This isn't pushing it. That is the way that it is. All right, next. C, the church period. And you'll remember the Jews rejected Christ, their Messiah, and so God established the church. The church was not known in the Old Testament. Now, we can prove that through many scriptures. If you go to Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16 Verse 18, which is a very well-known verse indeed. Matthew 16, 18. All right. And I will say also unto thee, says Jesus to Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And do you see the will there? That's future tense. In other words, he's saying the church isn't in existence at the moment, but I'm going to build it. The church at this time was still future. All right. And Paul himself, as we read last time, and we'll turn to it now, in Ephesians 3, talks about this dispensation, and he says it's a new thing. This is a new revelation, a new administration of God. Let's just read it through. Ephesians 3, 1 to 10, and I'll read it quickly. 
For this cause, says Paul, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, would, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. This is brand new, Israel knew nothing about this. The Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs with the Jews. Well, 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 in the church, in the one body of Christ, this is brand new. This is a shift of administration. Wasn't true in the Old Testament. It is true now, you see. And so he says, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Do you see? Now this is how God is, is working. This is a new administration. And so the dispensation of the church lasts from the evening of the resurrection of Christ right through to the day when the church will be removed from the earth. And that goes right through. All right, let's quickly go through the uh, various features of it, and I'll put these up. The various features of the church period. Here they are. Well, again, for, for uniformity, I put the first two points in. A, the peoples are still separated into nations. B, there are many languages and cultures. And in our day, there are many trying to stop that. And what they're trying to do, actually, is overcome the Tower of Babel. Right? We've got to understand that all internationalism is trying to overcome the Tower of Babel. And that perhaps might influence your thinking about the UN and other things like that, which are not Christian in any way. All right? Praise God, by the way, for the differences in culture and nations that we've got. What a wealth it gives to us. It's a great source of wealth, if only we would use it aright. Uh, C, there's written revelation in this day. Now, in the early church, Paul and the apostles received the word of God, but they wrote it down. And that's what we've seen earlier in this course, the canon of scriptures written. And by the way, next course, we will have a tape called God's Word or Mine, in which we'll have a look at prophecy. And one of the points I'll be making there is this, that no prophecy is of higher authority than the written Word of God. All prophecy has to be tested by this written Word. Okay? So it's by written revelation in this particular uh, era. D, the church now becomes God's missionary base. The church consisting of Jew and Gentile, but now God's going to use the church to preach the gospel and the church to show his dealings with man. That's his great idea. And by the way, what a bombshell, what a revelation the church is. You imagine it. God has chosen people from every nation, every culture, every linguistic type on the face of this earth, and he's chosen his own people from among them. Isn't that lovely? They look as if they're Mongolian, but they're not really. They're God's nation. Isn't that wonderful? He's got a nation spread among all the nations of this world, and you know it's hard to tell 
just by looking at them or by listening to them, that they belong to God's nation. He so wants them as effective missionaries that he says, well, the best people to preach to the Mongolians is the Mongolians, right? They like rancid butter tea. And so the Mongolian sits there. He's a born-again Christian. He can speak fluent Mongolian. He doesn't make mistakes, as I would in Mongolian. Actually, I, w- I n- have never made a mistake in Mongolian in my life up to now. Do you know that? So I've never, I don't know one word of Mongolian. But uh, th- this chap sits there. He likes yaks, right? He likes the smell of yaks. He likes the, s- the winters of the Gobi Desert. He likes it. He's used to wearing the clothes they wear. He's been brought up like it. And here he is, supping his rancid butter tea, preaching the gospel to the people sitting in the tent. Isn't that wonderful? What better person is there to do it than that? And in Britain, who have you got? You've got the British to preach to the British. It's good news. And the French to preach to the French and so on. But really, the truth about us is we're a brand new nation. Oh, yes, God has transcended all national race Cultural differences, they're meaningless as far as we're concerned. And that's why no matter which country you go to, if you meet a born-again Christian, you talk the same language. Right? It's just in a different language, but it's the same language. You know what you're talking about. One of them says, you know, the Lord really spoke to me this morning, they say in Turkish, and you know what he means the moment it's translated. You're absolutely on a par with him. You know, you really can. I sat in a Hungarian church, unable to understand a word of Hungarian, And all these people were singing their hearts off. And do you know, I didn't have the barrier of a common language. You see? I heard the man speaking at the front, and I didn't know what he was talking about. If I had, I might have been a bit critical. Say, well, I don't quite agree with that. (laughs) What a barrier a common language is sometimes. And I sat there in the church, unable to know a word he was speaking about, but I felt the spirit of the man. And I was so blessed. You know, I really was. I I don't know what he was talking about from that day to this. But I was so blessed. Isn't God clever? Oh, it's wonderful. And by the way, this is why correct missionary activity is this. It's not for the Englishman to go along to the Indians or whichever country and there preach the gospel to them and make them build British-style churches and all dress in the British style and all become little Britons. That's not it. No, no. If we're going to do any preaching, we go out there, we convert Indians who will preach to the Indians. Praise God. We've got enough work to do here, by the way. Okay? It's important that we get this absolutely right. Now, this is a brilliant design of God here, you see. And here we are. We owe allegiance to our nation. Of course we do. But our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. It's in heaven. We are ambassadors. We're missionaries for Christ. That's who we are. So we're his nation. And and also then, uh, following straight on, E, every member of the church is a priest. You don't have to be descended from Levi. Isn't it good news? You don't have to be descended from Levi. If you are a born-again believer, you're a priest. Now, where does it say this? 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Actually, there's a verse before that, too. Let's have a look at it. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And this is what Peter says of us. But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. Isn't it good news? When I've ministered on this verse, I've made the obvious point. In the days of Israel, to be a king, to be royal, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Hence, no one in Israel could be both royal and a priest. But as for me, I can be both. And I am both. I hope you realize that when I came in. 
sheer royalty, and I'm a priest as well. Isn't that wonderful? Because I'm in Christ. Next, a holy nation. This is a nation separated unto God. You might think you're British. You are British. But first of all, you belong to his nation. Then a peculiar people. Very true of us. Um, right? A peculiar people. A set-apart people. Right? God's own people. That's what it means. That you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse uh, 5, I think it is, confirms that. But ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And we are a fellowship that not only preaches the priesthood of all believers, we actually put it into practice. Right? We're not just hearers of the word, we're doers also, aren't we? Yes. Right. And notice the second part of that. Not only is every member of the church a priest, but Jesus is our high priest. Now, this is very important. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. How then can he be high priest? Well, you see, it's after the order of Melchizedek. It's gone back. And now, as the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, he is now high priest. It's gone back to the old system. Is that a shift? Of course it's a shift. We're not fiddling it. There it is. If you don't believe me, Hebrews is all about this. Let's see a few verses in Hebrews as we're up that end of the Bible. Right? First of all, Hebrews 8.1 describes him as a high priest. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. And who's he referring to? Jesus Christ there. And then in uh, Hebrews 7, verse 11 to 17, he talks about the Levitical priesthood and Christ's relationship to it. Verse 11 of Hebrews 7. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what he's saying is this, there's a new dispensation, folks. That's actually how we could sum that up. It's a shift in the way God has administered things. All right, last one, G. Well, I put here worship anywhere. Is that true? Well, not really. You see, the interesting thing is, again, we can only worship in the temple. But as the temple is our body, that means we can worship anywhere. So the answer is here, well, you can worship only in the temple, and that means anywhere. So you can worship anywhere. Where does it say we are the temple of the Holy Ghost? You know it as well as I do. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? When I come on to the healthy body, we'll be talking about what that phrase means. No need to turn to that now. All right, I think that's clear that this is a new administration, isn't it? I think it is. All right, the last one, 
the period of Christ's reign. For the day is coming when Jesus Christ will return, second advent. And when he returns, he will reign in Jerusalem. And a new administration begins. All right? There it is. Last a thousand years, it's dealt with in Revelation chapter 20 and many Old Testament passages. Fine. You may, I hope you remember the tapes I've done on prophecy in which I describe this. It begins with believers only. All the unbelievers are removed, and it begins with believers only. Let's have a look at it again. A, still many nations. Even in the kingdom of God, there's still national groupings. Notice that. Do you see that? Praise God, internationalism isn't going to work. Good news. B, many languages and cultures. Oh, well, well, well. Esperanto isn't going to catch on after all. Well, well. C, there's written and verbal revelation. Why? Written revelation, because this Bible's still around. Do you know that? That in the millennium, we're going to have Bible studies still, folks. The Word of God lives and abides. Hallelujah. It's here forever, the Word of God is. But there's also verbal revelation, for Jesus will be seated in Jerusalem, and every word he speaks is, of course, the canon of Scripture. Isn't that wonderful? All right, so there it is. And the knowledge of the Lord, of course, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. No problem. D, the church reigns with Christ in this period. I think we better check that out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and verse 3. Do you not know, he says, and he's talking to us, that the saints shall judge the world, and if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So we're going to reign with Christ in the period of Christ's reign. That's good news. Uh, and then the second part of D, Israel is restored as chief among the nations. Do you see that? The church and Israel still separate. We keep it absolutely. Israel's chief among the nations. It's the head and not the tail. It's now had all the promises and covenants fulfilled to it, and it's still here. Good news. All right? Okay, now that's, that's that. I think that's uh, clear. E, Israel is the priestly nation. And this time they're a nation of priests, but the Levitical priesthood is still functioning as well. Why is it necessary to have priests, by the way, if you begin with believers only? Well, the believers are going to have children in that day. And in the millennium, there will be children born to the believers, and they'll need saving, these uh, children. And so the gospel has still got to be preached, even to them. But Levi is going to be restored. I think it's worth our while checking that out. Malachi chapter 3, first of all. Malachi and chapter 3, where it talks about the second advent of Christ. And uh, Handel's marvellous music rings out from verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? I won't sing it to you. Right? No one would get the tape. Now, verse 2. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Right? He's going to cleanse. This is the second event. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And we also see it in Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel 40, 
which refers to the temple that is going to be built in this period. 40 and verse 46. And uh, it's talking about the inner gate and the chambers and so on. And in verse 46, we have a little reference to the descendants of Levi. Ezekiel 40, 46. And the chamber whose prospect is towards the north is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok among the sons of Levi, which come near to the Lord to minister unto him. And so on the earth, the Levitical priesthood is functioning yet again. Five. So Israel is the priestly nation. If salvation by faith in Christ fully revealed, salvation by faith in Christ, all right, fully revealed, he's sitting there in Jerusalem. I think I missed F, didn't I, in the church period? Again, it's the same. We know the historical facts of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no problem. And they know as we know. And last of all, then, G, there is worship where? In Jerusalem. And Jesus sits enthroned in Jerusalem, and those who worship have to go up to Jerusalem to worship him there. And if they don't go, by the way, they receive judgment from God. And we'll just see one uh, verse on that. Zechariah 14. And I hope you'll remember this from the prophecy tapes. Zechariah 14, verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Those who came up against Jerusalem refers to the period at the end of the tribulation. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what they will do. They will keep the Feast of Tabernacle in that day. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord would smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of tabernacles. All right, now that is for that day. By the way, does that apply today? No, today you've got believers going up on the Feast of Tabernacles as a witness to Israel. I have no objection. That doesn't fulfill that particular verse. If it did, heaven help the Egyptians. That's what I would say. You see, no, you can't mess about like that. All right, now I've been through the millennium in such detail, I'm not going to say any more about it. You have perfect environment on the earth. Uh, you know, men live in clover, literally. Then there is the rebellion right at the end. Do you remember that? And so on. All right, so that's what we've got. So these are the dispensations of the earth. And by the way, the new heaven and new earth which comes, that's not a dispensation of this earth. That's a brand new creation. So cut it out of your thinking as far as dispensationalism is concerned. All right? And that's it. So here are the four basic dispensations and their characteristics. Now, can you see from this, one, there are unifying factors, but there are definite shifts, aren't there, in each dispensation? All right? And that's what we mean by dispensationalism. And we're going to use this next time. Now, I haven't quite finished. All right? I've got a little more to say. You'll notice here that each one of these dispensations is divided from the others by a major event. You've got creation and the Tower of Babel, and then the next dispensation. Then you've got the arrival of Jesus, and the next dispensation. Then you've got the second advent of Christ, and the next dispensation. Right. All right. That's true of the big divisions that we've made. But do you know, you can also put in a few subdivisions. 
And there are other major events which mark out the subdivisions. And if you just turn over, and we can do this very quickly, we can actually subdivide two of the periods. All right? So the first subdivision is rather interesting. A, the pre-Israel period. Now let's go right back. This is the period from creation to the Tower of Babel. In that period, you've got two major events that we haven't mentioned yet. You've got the fall of man and you've got the flood of Noah. Did they cause a shift? Well, they did. Not as dramatic a shift, but a definite shift all the same. Actually, the first one is as dramatic. The other one isn't. Let's just see it. I've divided, therefore, the first period into three basic periods. First of all, you've got the period from creation to the fall. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Here are the characteristics of this. One, man is not fallen. Two, there was fellowship with God face to face. No problem. Three, man lived and worked in Eden. Four, man was naked and he knew no shame. Five, there was no death and death had no reign at this point. Six, there was a vegetarian diet. Then the fall of man occurred. Now what happened then? Well, Genesis 3 to 6 tells us, now man is fallen. That's a shift. Fellowship with God now, not face to face, but through grace, you remember it was God who said, Adam, where art thou? He made the first step. And through sacrifice. Okay? And God, if you remember, was the one who actually took off the fig leaves that they'd used to cover themselves, and he killed animals. He clothed them with skins. Do you remember this? And that was God's grace and sacrifice. Man was thrown out of Eden. He was forbidden to go to Eden. And it was in that throwing out that man learnt that sin would be judged. It was a very clear statement of the judgment of sin and the unacceptability of sin. Go back to Genesis uh, chapter 3. Let's have a look at this. Genesis chapter 3 again. They covered themselves with fig leaves, but there's no blood in fig leaves. So Jesus took these innocent animals... All right, the Lord took the innocent animals. They'd never done anything wrong. And he slit their throats. And using their skins, he made clothes for Adam and Eve. All right? Verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This was a real angel and a real flaming sword. And by the way, until Noah's flood, you could take your children to the entrance of Eden and you could see the angel and the flaming sword. And undoubtedly they did. I would certainly have taken my family to see it. And they would have said, that's where man was designed to live. It's paradise in there. But we're now excluded because of Adam's sin. And that angel and that flaming sword show us, a flaming sword, God's judgment upon sin. And they would warn their children about sin from this thing. This is a historical thing. I mean, you could have taken a picnic, had a picnic by the side of it, to good look at it. That's how real it was. It's not just a picture here. It's absolutely literal. Consistently literal. Do you see the point that we're making? All right? Next, man was clothed. We wear clothes. You know, we're the only part of God's creation that wears clothes. Do you know that? Man. 
Isn't that funny? No animal wears clothes. No plant wears clothes. Only man wears clothes. Why? Because man is fallen. That's why. And the fact that you wear clothes is a sign of your fall. That is the fallacy behind nudism, or what they call it, naturism. Naturism is acting as if man is not fallen. And they sear their consciences, you know. Most of us feel ashamed, right, of nakedness. Most of us. And that's inbuilt in you. And it's a sign that you are a fallen being, all right? So man is now clothed. The reign of death begins. There's still a vegetarian diet. Then you come on to the next period, which is after the flood. For the evil of man gets so bad that the flood comes and is sent by God. And so after the flood, there is a shift again. Let's have a look at that. This is the post-flood period. Again, I've written it out the same way. Man is fallen. That's the same. Fellowship with God only through grace and sacrifice. That's the same. Eden is now swept away in Noah's flood. It doesn't exist anymore. No point in looking for it. Right? It's been swept away by the flood waters. Man is clothed. The reign of death intensifies. For after the flood, the climate deteriorated greatly. You know that, don't you? And after the flood, right? After the flood, the age of man begins to decline. Do you remember it declines exponentially? The exact way you would expect it to decline because of the uh, buildup of cosmic radiation. And that happens after the flood. And that's the reign of death coming in. And by the way, capital punishment is introduced at this particular point. I think we'll turn to that now. Genesis 9, verse 5. Up to this time, there was no capital punishment. From this time on, capital punishment has been sanctioned by God. And in verse 5, you've got it. Genesis 9, verse 5, this is the word of God. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. In other words, this is now absolutely correct. If a man has committed premeditated murder, it is correct for the society to remove his life. And I've dealt with that in detail on the capital punishment tapes. Then, last of all, man now starts to eat meat. In Genesis 1, he is clearly said to be a vegetarian. He eats the herbs of the field. Look what it says in Genesis 9, verse 3. Now every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Vegetarianism is no longer the rule. Now man eats meat. Now I've dealt with that on my tape on giants, if you remember and refer back to that. All right? So there is the split that we can have in the uh, pre-Israel period. There is also very quickly a split then in the Israel period. And the big event in the Israel period is the Exodus. All right? The period we're dealing with is between the Tower of Babel and the coming of Jesus. The Exodus is the big event in the middle. And the characteristics then can be listed out. And this is quite simple. I haven't made these a separate dispensation. What I have done is uh, just make them subdivisions. And I'll put this up on the overhead projector. And there we go. Before the Exodus, Israel was a family unit, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. At the Exodus, they become a nation. And once they're out of Egypt and into national status, then God gives them the law. 
And you remember, it's just once they've left Egypt that the law is actually given. And look what I've said here. God's law is revealed, including the Sabbath rule. Do you know there is no evidence at all that the Sabbath was ever kept before the law was given, that is, before the Exodus? There's no evidence at all. And the evidence in Scripture is this, that the Sabbath was the covenantal sign between Israel and God. Now, isn't that absolutely staggering? Let's have a look again quickly at that. In Exodus 31, in Exodus 31, verse 13... Verse 12 and verse 13, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and you. There it is throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. And the Sabbath rule was a sign between who? Between God and Israel. There it is. Nehemiah also states the same in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, just find Nehemiah chapter 9, this is what he says in verse 13 and 14, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and made known unto them thy holy Sabbath. When was the Sabbath made known to Israel? Not before Israel came a onto the scene of history, but at the giving of the law, after the Exodus. And that is why, incidentally, the Sabbath is the rule for Israel. It is not the rule for the church. And that's why in the New Testament you will not find the commandment to keep the Sabbath ever repeated. Nine out of the ten commandments are repeated. The one that is not repeated for the church is the Sabbath rule. That's just a little point in passing. All right? So there you've got the overall scheme. And it becomes then rather interesting because we have four dispensations, pre-Israel, Israel, the church, and Christ. The first dispensation we can subdivide between pre-fall, post-fall, post-flood, Israel, pre-Exodus, post-Exodus, and the church and Christ are not split at all. That gives us seven overall periods. And you'll notice every period is separated by a major event, The creation, the fall, the flood, Babel, the exodus, the first advent, and then the second advent comes before the reign of Christ. Well, so far, so good. So where's the problem? Why is it that dispensationalism is criticized so heavily? Well, you see, have you noticed? I've missed mention of a little something. You see, before the second advent of Jesus Christ, We know from Matthew 24, there is a period of tribulation. Now the question is, where does the tribulation fit into all this? Is it a a separate dispensation? Is it part of the church dispensation? Where does it fit in? Well, that is the question we've got to turn our attention to next time. And what we're going to do is this, we're going to have a look at the characteristics of the tribulation, and we're going to ask ourselves, does this sound like the church dispensation? And if it does, well, then it's clear the church is going through the tribulation. If it doesn't, what does it sound like then? And we're going to find one or two rather interesting answers, which will be no surprise to any of us who've heard the teaching thus far. We're also going to find how a knowledge of dispensationalism helps us with that nitty 
gritty little passage in Matthew 25 that seems to suggest that if you don't give food to the poor and drink to the thirsty and visit those who are in prison, you will actually go to hell, which is a major passage used by those who want you to believe that there is salvation by works and not by grace. We'll understand how dispensationalism gives you the answer to passages like that. Until next time then, praise God. Let's just pray. Father, I'm so grateful to you, Lord, for being able to span the whole of the history of the world in just over an hour. Hallelujah. Father, it's a wonderful thing that we can do, and thank you for making it so clear to us. Father, I ask you to bless this tape, and I ask you to bless all who will take the sheets away and study them. May they find, Father, great enlightenment, and may they find their understanding of the Bible greatly enlarged, even through this study. In Jesus' name, Amen. Praise God.